1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: They are a brutal and savage regime that operates on the basis of physical coercion and force. They are with the aim of appropriating power, wealth and the resources of Afghanistan to themselves. So the fear would be, if the Taliban allow Al-Qaeda and all of the other affiliate networks, all of these Salafist Wahhabi fanatics, to plan for attacks in Europe and the United States, that there will be a resumption of these, these kinds of attacks.
1: I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The news reports from Afghanistan are becoming more concerning by the day as Taliban militants returned to their own rule of law with barbaric punishments, revenge killings and the persecution of women and minorities. The images of the terrifying warlords with their high-powered weapons and fanatical beliefs may seem like a world away from modern Ireland, but how will their reign affect us all? And where did such a violent and repressive system of beliefs emerge from? Today, I'm talking to Dr. Tom Clonan, security analyst and retired Irish army officer who's an expert on the Middle East. He tells me about crime and punishment under the brutal Taliban system of justice, what life is like under the veil for the women of Afghanistan, and what has motivated tens of thousands of young men to join the ranks of the most repressive regime known in civilised society. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I was reading there the other day that the Afghanistan Ministry of Women's Affairs has been shut down and reopened for the first time in 20 years is the Ministry of Prayer and Guidance and the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. They call it the Vice and Virtue Ministry. And it is the moral police, isn't it?
0: Yeah, so this is an emirate um, set up by the Taliban. And the Taliban are a Sunni-oriented uh, group. So they're, they're part of Sunni Islam. And they represent a part of Sunni Islam that is referred to as Salafist or Wahhabi. So it's a very extreme fundamentalist uh, version of Sunni Islam, mm. and the Salafs were kind of like, uh, if you think of the apostles, um, so they were people who embodied the the, the the very hard line on on an interpretation of the Quran and how one ought to behave. Um, so if you're referred to as Salafist, it means that you, you emulate or want to... Uh, Repeat that, sorry, you know, this is your world vision, this is your philosophical viewpoint. So, for Salafist or Wahhabi um, fundamentalists, there are a number of groups. So, you have the Taliban, and they share that ideology with Islamic State, with Al Qaeda, with Boko Haram, Mm. with Al Shabaab. So, all of the extreme, uh, and they're so extreme that they're referred to by most. Uh, Muslim scholars and imams as Islamist, that they're not actually their their views are so extreme that most Muslim scholars and imams would regard them to be offensive to the Quran mm. and a kind of a perversion of Quranic teaching. So they have very very extreme views about uh, non-Muslims, who they refer to as kufars uh, and the world that is non-muslim is referred to as dar al-kufar so that's the whole world that is not muslim and that's a pejorative term it would be the equivalent of the n-word if 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 you will uh, and that's that's a word that would be very commonly used by people uh, of that persuasion to describe uh, non-muslims and that would also be a word that they would use to describe shia muslims so for example people in iran or Groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon, and they would regard them as almost like subhuman. Um, it's and very
1: cultish, that attitude. Isn't yeah, it, yeah. To and who and that, think. that's
0: one, one of the reasons why uh Islamic State, when they had their caliphate in Iraq and Syria, they targeted other groups like uh, Shia Muslims, uh, Yazidis, Kurds, Christians, Copts, anybody that was outside of their. Um, particular uh, ethnic group or their religious kind of ethnic group. Uh, But apart from all of that, the one thing that they absolutely target are women, women and girls, Um, because in in their view, um, women and girls have no place in the the public realm. So during the Taliban's regime from 1996 to 2001, um, they put into effect their Sharia law, as it applied to women. So women were forbidden to go to school. Women were forbidden to work. Uh, women were forbidden to participate in any aspect of public life. To the extent that if a woman left the home, um, she had to be accompanied at all times by a male relative or a chaperone. Um, the ground floor windows of houses were painted over or uh, had timber placed over them. In And this was part of the Sharia law. And this was... Enforced by the religious police, which uh, are
1: these this this vice and virtue ministry I'm talking about? That yeah, just so reopened. so they're going to
0: reconstitute the religious mm. police, and they were the enforcers. So you know they'd go around and make sure that all all homes and dwelling places had the windows blacked out, and basically women are expected to stay indoors in the dark, unseen, uh, for all of their lives, and just have children. It's it's an extra like women are treated uh, like cattle only. Cattle aren't beaten, whipped, and punished in the way that that women would wear and are under this version of Shari law. So, uh, you know, it led to a situation where, you know, if a woman, I there's one very famous example of, of a woman whose husband uh, died and um, she had a, an issue with her pregnancy, but she couldn't go to the hospital because she had no male relative to, to bring her there. So she was in agony at home. Eventually um, out of sheer desperation I think she got a, a neighbouring child, a male child to walk with her to the hospital and on the way she was intercepted by the religious police and they felt that this male person wasn't sufficiently related to her to constitute a, a proper halal sort of uh, uh, chaperone and so she was beaten. Uh, so this is, this is the vision for women. So there are approximately 19 million women and girls in Afghanistan who will, because of this uh, new Taliban regime, are l- confronted with going back to the Stone Age, essentially. Although
1: I doubt even in the Stone Age if women were treated in this way. This is a. It's kind of like these weird, sort of biblical, do you know? I mean, all we can try and even consider would be like it is these sort of biblical times. Yeah, it's barbaric, but I think it's one of their. Principal
0: instruments of terror. Uh, you, you know, you subjugate women. Women are, and and the language around this, I think, in some of the coverage, I think the language as journalists, I think we have to be very careful. So they talk about arranged marriages. So where girls, as young as eight or nine or ten years old, are forced into arranged marriages with with older men, uh, that's essentially rape. It's 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 a paedophilia, you know, formalised it's it, and it's actually in their eyes it's considered a, a sort of a it's a high status arrangement for an older man to rape uh, an 8 or 9 or a 10 year old girl uh, under this uh, euphemism for rape and abduction which is called uh, you know an arranged marriage and also uh, the use of the term sex slaves you know that it was a formula of words that was used a lot during the um, Islamic State's caliphate that they were rounding up Yazidi women and using them as sex slaves. Well, essentially, it's mass rape. It's systematic rape, um, and it's part of a campaign of ethnic cleansing to destroy the, as they would see it, the the, the 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 religious and ethnic integrity of a targeted group. So they use the suppression of women as as their prime one of the primary instruments of of terror to subjugate people and. Like Islamic State with their caliphate in Iraq and Syria, Taliban use exactly the same methods. It's it's violence, coercion. They they demand a tax or a religious tax from people. They insist that women and girls are kept in behind closed doors. Um, women and girls are routinely subjected to physical assault, sexual assault, and you know these so called arranged marriages or uh, abduction and and rape uh, and the it, it 's such a negative situation if a woman is raped, then she can also be found guilty of being the mm. victim of a rape for which the penalty can be death by stoning or by uh, other forms of execution uh, beheading or, yes or because the still. crime
1: of adultery is is that is the punishment for that's a public stoning which we saw before between ninety six and two thousand and one. I think there was video and news footage of women being taken into the stadiums the sports stadiums um in Kabul etc. I mean they have a very clear system of what is a crime and what isn't a crime and it's mm. a crime a crime of adultery if a man says the woman has committed adultery. So what sort of a position are you in if you don't particularly like the husband you're with or the fellow you're with and uh you know you yeah, well, want it's, out it's, it's, I mean it's it's
0: it's it's, it's, it's the most extreme form of patriarchy, mm, I suppose mm. you, you could call it, where women are completely and utterly uh, subordinated, disempowered, and are the subject of, of violence. But it, it all, they also target, you know, uh, young children. So the, the leader of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan or Pakistan, depending on where they are just now, is Ayman al-Zawahiri. So he was Osama bin Laden's number two. And uh, in a very well documented... So just to give you an example of their thinking... yeah. Um, Al-Qaeda were infiltrated by the Muqabarat, that's the the secret service in Egypt. And the Muqabarat raped two boys and filmed the rape, two children, uh, in order to threaten their parents to give information on Al-Qaeda and their operations. These two men, the the parents of the two boys, they went to Ayman al-Zawahiri, who's actually a, a medical doctor, a surgeon, who did his specialist training in the UK. Um, to get advice about what they should do. So Ayman al-Zawahiri looked at the video of the rape of the two boys and then he said he wanted to medically examine them. So he medically examined the two boys and he came to the conclusion that because the boys had the beginnings of pubic hair, that therefore they were men and that therefore they had consented and participated in the rape and the two boys were executed. And that is one of the reasons... Why Ayman al zwahiri and Osama bin Laden actually had to leave? Um, I think they were in in Somalia or Ethiopia. That they had to leave because they were actually even too extreme for the extremists in that area, and that's how they actually one of the principal reasons why they had to flee to Afghanistan. Afghanistan was the only country that would would give them physical uh, safe haven under the Taliban. So the, this is the mindset. It's just an extraordinarily perverse and uh, toxic worldview.
1: And like, in my simple mind, they are the criminals. I mean, they are identifying crimes that, you know, and punishments that are just so ancient, so out of this world, cutting off the hands of thieves without anesthetics, as we were talking about, Um, stoning any woman for what they see as illegal intercourse, um, if you are if you kill, they kill you back, you know, an eye for an eye mentality. Mm-hmm. But to me, they are criminals, plain and simple, black oh, yeah. and white. I they're mean, they're you, the criminals.
0: If you look at it from a kind of a um, a human sciences perspective, if you look at it from the point of view of, let's say, political science or anthropology, it, it, this this legal system, this Sharia law system, If you want to coerce and subjugate a a people by force, because the Taliban are made up of the Pashtun uh, tribe, if you like, but there are other ethnic groups in Afghanistan, Uzbeks, Tajiks, uh, and Hazara, which are Shia Muslims. So if you want to dominate by force and control these groups, uh, then Sharia law is the, if you like, administrative and legal system of choice. So if you have a, a a regime that is dictatorial and wants to suppress people through coercion and fear sharia law is the is the obvious choice it's the perfect choice so it's you know they mobilize all of this religious rhetoric as did islamic state in order simply to generate income for themselves uh and essentially grab power precisely <clears throat> and and they will as, as they move forward, try to appropriate for themselves all of the natural resources and oil, gas and mineral wealth of Afghanistan for themselves. So it's, it's, it's just a way...
1: Which there's said to be loads of, except there just hasn't been foreign investment because the country's never been stable enough. Yeah, and so... Um, they, so they, they have, can convince, yeah. well, the Chinese, I presume... And so,
0: yeah, and they have mm, been negotiating with the Chinese, would you believe it, since 2014. So they have had seven years of negotiations with the Chinese uh, and also with the Russians, uh, they've been negotiating with uh, Putin's regime um, since I think about 2015, 2016. And uh, actually the week before the Taliban arrived in downtown Kabul, uh, earlier than expected, on I think it was about the 15th of August, the week before, they'd given press conferences in, with the Chinese foreign minister in, in China and with uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign foreign minister in 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 the Kremlin in Moscow, members of the Taliban, and the Russians said that they had struck a deal with the Taliban that when when they take over, they would not export uh, Islamist militants and train them to go across the border to co- to, to carry out attacks in Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, mm. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, all of those former satellite states. The Chinese at uh, their border with Afghanistan is Xinjiang Province, where you have the the Uyghurs. These are the uh, ethnic. Uh, so the, the Chinese refer to it as the the autonomous uh, Uyghur uh, uh, region, and these are eth- ethnic, you know, m- a Muslim group that are now being persecuted. So the trained by the Taliban in camps in Pakistan, uh, Uyghurs did carry out a number of. Uh, Islamic State-style attacks, both in the regional capital of Xinjiang province and also uh, in Beijing itself, at the gates of the Forbidden City. So Xi Jinping, the Chinese premier, did a deal with the Taliban and said, okay, when when you take over in Afghanistan, uh, as long as you do not allow militants to cross through the narrow border between Afghanistan and Xinjiang province to destabilize that part of China, well then we will in return uh, invest heavily in your infrastructure and assist you in getting out all of the mineral uh, gas and oil wealth that, that Afghanistan uh, potentially has. So under their what they call their Belt and Bridges uh, policy or Belt and Bridges initiative, the Chinese have done a deal with the Taliban where what they call the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which brings Chinese influence right down to the Gulf, the Arabian Gulf and the the, the Persian Gulf, uh, through Afghanistan. So they'll invest in roads, bridges, infrastructure, and all of the sort of the heavy uh, infrastructure that will be necessary for the Taliban to extract all of the the country's wealth. So if you like, as of the 31st of August, when the last uh, U.S. Um, from the 82nd Airborne, left the country after 20 years of war. The United States is no longer uh, a player in uh, Central Asia. The players now are Taliban, China, Russia, and to some extent, uh, Pakistan. So there's been a shift in the the global order in, in Central Asia. And that is unfortunately also mirrored by a similar shift in the Middle East, where after uh, invading Iraq uh, and in operations that cost trillions and trillions of dollars, the United States no longer have any influence in Iraq, Syria, Iran, or Lebanon. That is now completely controlled by Iran through Baghdad, Damascus, and Beirut. So there has been, after 20 years of the global war on terror, uh, we've seen uh, a real shift in power from U- U.S.-dominated uh, allied intervention in the Middle East and Central Asia to a very, very—I wouldn't like to say clever because it's so morally r- repugnant—but but Russia and China have, by you know, not using force to the same extent, have managed to become power brokers in, in those regions. In those
1: regions and Iran also, ha- I think, has one of these moral police. There's only a few countries in the world that have them. Iran have one that also focuses on women and their crimes Mm. um, and Saudi Arabia. But there was some reduction in what their powers were in 2016. Um, To go back to the Taliban as an organization, like, have we any idea how many people there are in the Taliban are seen as whatever you'd call it, members?
0: Yeah, so it was estimated that at the time of the taking of Kabul in August, that countrywide, throughout Afghanistan, they had about 85,000 fighters. And, you know, the Americans arrived in October of 2001. And actually, they only had a small number of troops. They only had about 2,500 troops. They invaded, but they got all of the tribal groups, the Uzbeks, Tajiks, Hazaras behind them, and they formed this military group called the Northern Alliance. And they had pushed the Taliban out by Christmas of 2001. So in two months, an extraordinary operation. Mm. So 20 years, the Taliban have been across the border in Pakistan, preparing, training, carrying out an insurgency in Afghanistan, waiting for the clock to tick down until the Americans had to leave. So they've had 20 years to prepare for this Mm. uh, military operation that they carried out. And a bit like the American one of 2001, it was really rapid. So they took the country very, very quickly with these uh, 85,000 fighters.
1: Back to my basic thought process on them being criminals and having, you know, criminal ideology. Um, How do you get 85,000 people to have that same mindset? Maybe there's no way of answering that, but... Well, well, some
0: observers have said that they're actually the biggest drug gang Mm. in Central Asia. Because they, so essentially to answer your question, uh, these young men get money, power and guns and, you know, horrifically get to rape their way all the way from the the border, the tribal areas in Pakistan to
1: the capital city. And we have the classic probably in the background there, which is similar in criminality, that if they don't take up those roles, they're impoverished and... Oh, Probably. Become, they become victims. There's, okay. They're targeted themselves. Mm.
0: So one of the interesting, uh, so most of these uh, fighters are Pashtun, Afghan, uh, how would you say, natives. Many of whom, though, have been living in training camps and special schools, madrasas, in Pakistan for, for long periods through the American and NATO-led occupation. But there are other groups. There are a lot of foreign fighters um, who have become part of this. So countries like Saudi, mm. uh, Saudi Arabia, some of the Gulf states, they will actually, if they have trouble, troublesome young men like Osama bin Laden, like Ayman al zawahiri who's Egyptian, they will actually say, well, look, why don't you go to Afghanistan and do your jihad there? And so there are there, there's a significant number of so-called foreign fighters or jihadis amongst their number. Uh, but there's an interesting sect amongst them the uh, the Haqqani network so these are uh, a group of again within the Taliban they are the most extreme okay hard hardliners and they were set up by a guy called Jalaluddin Haqqani uh, in Pakistan ready to cross the border carry out attacks in Afghanistan and regain power and the, and the Taliban in Pakistan were supported at all times by the Pakistan Inter-Service Intelligence Agencies. Um, because with instability in Afghanistan, <clears throat> you get a huge influx of refugees from Afghanistan into Pakistan, into the, tr- the the northwest frontier, the tribal provinces, and that causes instability within Pakistan. So the Pakistani government have always supported the Taliban in the belief that the stable regime, such as it is, um, prevents um, mass uh, Flight of refugees and, inter- and, and displaced persons in, into Pakistan. So the, the Haqqani network are absolutely extreme. They comprise about 15% of the Taliban's strength. And uh, Al Haqqani's son, Siriuddin Haqqani, is the leader of the Haqqani sect within the Taliban. And he has been named as the interior minister of uh, Afghanistan in the new regime. So he is, has... You couldn't you like, get
1: more extreme, basically, than this yeah, guy. Yeah, and
0: he will be responsible for all internal security and the domestic coercion within the country. And they have a number of um, sort of specialist units that are comprised in, exclusively of these Haqqani people. So they have this thing called the Badri 313 squad. So when the Taliban rushed into downtown... Kabul, and all of the embassies in the United States and the French and the Germans and the Danish and the Dutch and the Irish were running for the airport. It was these Haqqani people in the Badri squad and in what they called the red units who took over the presidential palace, who surrounded the airport and who became responsibility for security, such as it was within uh, Kabul in that really unstable period, that transition from um, the previous... U.S.-backed administration to, the, to the, the Taliban returning returning to power. So this this sends us a very strong signal that the Al qaqani network are at the center of gravity and the center of power within the Taliban movement. Al qaqani that was ne- a
1: political statement, rather than yeah. they were particularly the ones to do the security. On, on yeah, it.
0: and and you know they they're distinctive by their use of U.S. uniforms and U.S. weapons and U.S. Equipment and vehicles and night vision equipment, which
1: this was the stuff they stole, unfortunately, basically. yeah, that the yeah. Americans
0: left behind. So, yeah. you know, something like you know, thousands and thousands of mine resistant armoured vehicles. I know, uh, some crazy
1: figure, all this yeah. was worth. They just and, left it behind. And
0: aircraft and weapon systems. But the most disturbing thing about the Haqqani network is their links to Al Qaeda. They're very closely linked to Al Qaeda. And, um, People like Ayman al Zawahiri would be very vocal admirers of people like Surahuddin al Haqqani, and they've sworn allegiance to one another. So, apart from the immediate challenges for Afghanistan, you know, 38 million people, 1 million children below the age of five who are, according to the World Health Organization, suffering from malnutrition. huge problems with uh, a drought this year. It's almost like a perfect storm and the instability Mm -hmm. caused by the transition to Taliban power. 40% of of Afghanistan's, um, if you like, gross domestic product is through foreign aid. So they've got huge challenges at the moment. But one that the West will be worried about will be, will the Taliban... Dominated as it is by the Haqqani network, at you know holding its most uh, important roles in their new government, will they allow Al Qaeda to begin to train again and to begin to plan for attacks in Dar al kufar the world of non-Muslims? Yeah, and which is,
1: uh, us and the yeah, Americans, and, 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 and that's,
0: that's going to be a problem mm. because the Islamic State <clears throat> saw world domination as their ultimate goal. Uh, and Islamic State, their leadership uh, moved to North Africa uh, and and they're very active with a lot of groups like Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, uh, Islamic State in, in the Sahel and in, in the sub-Saharan and trans-Saharan Africa. They will now look to Afghanistan as a place to, you know, for, for refuge, a safe haven to train. And there's plenty of weapons there. there. And so there is the possibility that we may see a return or the fear would be that we may see a return to the type of uh, Islamic State-style attacks we saw in Europe in those awful summer periods of 2014, 2015, 2016. So if if you recall, there were literally hundreds of deaths in the European Union uh, through Islamic State attacks. The attacks nice, at,
1: Brussels, in London, Nice, yeah. Brussels,
0: uh, the uh, Bataclan Theatre attack and so on. But when the Americans... And I'm sorry to say this, the Russians and the Iranians destroyed the Islamic State's caliphate in Syria and Iraq. They no longer had a safe haven for these people to do their planning and train. And there was a very dramatic reduction in the number of terrorist attacks in Europe. So once they got rid of the caliphate, the Islamic State's caliphate, the number of terrorist attacks in Europe in 2017, 2018 dwindled to almost nothing. I mean, literally, it went from hundreds and hundreds of deaths to something like 12 in one year. So the fear would be, and this is consistent with the precedent, that if the Taliban allow Al-Qaeda and all of the other affiliate networks, all of these Salafist, Wahhabi fanatics, to plan uh, for attacks in Europe and the United States, that there will be a resumption of these these kinds of attacks.
1: Something you mentioned there about um, some of the soldiers, I suppose, training in Pakistan, and they have been for the last 20 years, you know, I suppose quietly building up their numbers from two and a half thousand to 85,000. But do they pick young boys from their families? Do they take them young and, and train them young child soldiers? Or do people come to them radicalised?
0: Very often, um, families, because of the madrasa system um, you know they're educated they they'll be taught how to to read and write they become mm. literate they study the quran so families will very often send their sons to these schools where they're educated and, and they become radicalized interestingly um at the height of islamic states powers um a, a number of irish passport holders went to fight um in the wars in syria and in in iraq uh, and a number of of Irish citizens were killed in those conflicts some of them were were children like they were under 18 so this is almost like child trafficking sending a child off to a hostile environment so they become involved with the Islamic state and lose their lives now i was talking to a very senior guard about this uh, and he told me that because the the guard here tried to engage with these communities uh, because you know, the vast majority of Muslims in in Ireland are horrified by this phenomenon because, again, the principal targets of groups like Islamic State are Muslims. Yeah. Uh, And they're the principal victims, principal targets, and they suffer so much from the, you know, the kind of the Islamophobia that these fanatics generate in in Western societies. But the senior guard told me that it wasn't the young, in, in the Irish case... Uh, in many instances, it was actually the families, it was the father that was sending a son off into this situation. Um, And so, I mean, they're not coerced into these madrasas in Pakistan, but a lot of them are displaced persons or refugees who who seek the stability that Pakistan can afford them. They become radicalised. And and this is a problem for for the West. We, We have to understand that in countries like Egypt, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, um, where there 's a lot of inequality, structural inequality, young men often can only self actualize through radicalization and the power that they get through you know carrying a weapon, becoming involved in this like narco terrorist kind of quasi religious cult and you know we we see the same problem here in some communities in in dublin where you, you 've a group of young men who don 't have strong Role, male role models in their families who, who become, you know, they seek out the status of being involved as 12 and 13-year-olds with, with, with drug gangs. They get money, they get, you know, Canada goose uh, coats and stuff. And it's, 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 not, it's not dissimilar, but it's just on a much, much larger larger scale because of the inequalities are, are, are so much greater. So we, we have a... There's a big challenge to the West. I think it was um, Noel Dorr, the Irish ambassador to the UN... Who, who said that the, the root cause of terrorism in most of the world was uh, what he called cesspools of human misery, where young people, particularly young men, cannot self-actualize. And the issue about women self-actualizing is taken out of the picture because they are oppressed and literally kept indoors against their will. So it's, it's just, it's a, it, it's a, my only hope in relation to what happens next in Afghanistan is that for the last 20 years, you've had a population that has been exposed to a different value system, such as it was, um, and that they may have aspirations that the Taliban...
1: Very young population, is that right?
0: Yeah, and and they may have aspirations... Two-thirds
1: of the population under 30, is that mm. right?
0: And these young people will will not have experienced this type mm. of regime before... And it, their aspirations for a for a different way of life. It may not be possible for the Taliban to uh, coerce and control them at gunpoint um, to the extent that they did back in between 1996 and 2001. So yeah. that would be the hope. you
1: would really love to see people rise up against it. I mean, it, it yeah, and, and you see that women are protesting. And yeah, I mean, very I, brave,
0: aren't it's they? It's extraordinary, and their faces are visible. Yeah. and that they're extraordinarily brave. But the the process. I think what the Taliban did was they suggested, you know, we're we're going to be the new uh, enlightened liberal Taliban. And I think that gave them time to consolidate their control. They were saying after August the 15th, they were asking public sector workers to come back into the power stations and the municipal offices and the administrations and the water plants saying we won't hurt you, we Mm -hmm. won't harm anybody. But now that they have them back and they have control and the infrastructure is up and running, and they'll be putting their own people in place, I think they will then begin to systematically identify and either imprison or murder those people they identify as enemies of the regime. Because this, you know, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior, and they are a a brutal and and savage regime that operates on the basis of physical coercion and force. They are with the aim of appropriating power, wealth and the resources of Afghanistan to themselves, irrespective of the rights or ambitions or aspirations of other groups like Uzbeks, Tajiks or Hazaras.
1: Now, there's other issues that should concern us here and in Europe, of course. Um, And one of those main issues is the production of heroin, opium, Mm -hmm. and... There's figures there that would suggest UN figures that would suggest that between six and eleven percent of the gross domestic product is made up of opium production, worth two billion a year. Most terrorist, all terrorist organizations are funded by drugs, um, and that opium boom from there began in the 1980s, following the sort of the invasion of the Soviets and the chaos that was there, but the Taliban obviously saw it as a way of funding them. Um, They, about 90% of the world's heroin comes out of Afghanistan and it makes its way through Turkey into Europe. Um, supplies all the main mafias, Mm. including our own. And um, the Taliban are claiming in the same way they're claiming they're coming back as a much more, you know, in much nicer guys, they're claiming that they're going to stop that opium mm. production. I don't think many people believe that, um, but there's bigger fears there that they have discovered this plant called ephedra, or at least it's grown, and you can you can. Um, they're, they're basically picking it and they, they handle it in a particular way and it's a major component for this methamphetamine, which Europe hasn't had a problem with. Obviously, the States has had a huge problem. It's highly addictive. Um, and, you know, are they going to reduce the opium production so as they can start supplying Europe with meth? Mm. Um, what's going to happen to the price of it? What's going to happen with all of that? I mean, that is a major issue. Um, Yeah, it's a big concern.
0: So the Taliban are are quite wealthy um, and um, there's a very useful breakdown of their balance sheet, which suggests, so according to the UN Global Strategy on Terrorism, they would say that um, of the billions in funding that the Taliban currently have as as they take over power, from this standing start, approximately $416 of their annual revenue comes from the production of, of heroin and other narcotics. Um, 464 million from minerals, the exporting of minerals and mineral products. Uh, they take 160 million at present in taxes. These are these religious levies that they take from the communities that they have, they've occupied. And they have about uh, 240 million in foreign backing from Countries such as Pakistan and some of the Gulf states. So uh, the UN Global Strategy on Terrorism says that increasingly, uh, international terrorism and uh, and the, the drugs, organised crime, the two are intimately linked. And so we have a similar situation in in Ireland, where you have so called dissident republican groups and dissident loyalist groups. Are actively involved in the importation of drugs, firearms, people trafficking, prostitution, and so on. Um, so it, it, it's it's not dissimilar in in Afghanistan. And again, for, from the point of view of their the regional power brokers, Russia, China, um, Pakistan. As long as they're not exporting terrorism into their jurisdiction, and as long as they're not exporting drugs into their jurisdiction, I think they'll be quite happy to, to turn a blind eye um, to whatever plans they have. And of course, it suits their agenda to flood the streets of Europe with with narcotics and methamphetamines. Uh, if you know, it's not going to give them. A moment's hesitation to to you know. Export. They certainly won't be
1: feeling bad about it, will they? No,
0: because they they see again. You know, it's Dar Al kufar it, it doesn't. It,
1: it We're nothing to them. We do, yeah, we're, it, we're not like, so, equal human beings. So it doesn't. No, I
0: mean it's 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 a very um toxic. I would say you know that's why that word Islamist. They're they're not Muslims. It's 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 a a perversion of Quranic teachings and ideas that are, has been mobilized and harnessed with the exclusive purpose of controlling at gunpoint uh, 38 million people in order that they can expropriate its, its wealth and, and power for themselves. Mm. They're a gang.
1: They are. They're a giant criminal mm-hmm. gang. And they're controlling so many people, as you say. It's, it's frightening. Um, keep me awake at night, actually. Yeah, yeah. I do. I, I Actually, I was saying to you there before we came on, I'd love to have visited Afghanistan over the last 20 years. I'm kicking myself, I never got around to it because mm. it just sounds like such a fabulous country. And if you ever read any of those, you know, the likes of The Kite Runner or a Thousand Splendid Sons, it just, you know, you get this amazing visualization of what the country is and could be, or was and could be like again. And, mm. um, you know...
0: And its its cultural contribution to the world has been immense. Like it, it, there's a school of architecture, um, there's uh, they, they've contributed to to mathematics, to geometry, to all all sorts of areas of artistic, cultural, intellectual life. Mm. And it's been on the silk the Silk Route. It is part of that natural corridor from Beijing right down to the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea, and it's part of that big trading route.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and again, that's part of the reason why. You know, naturally, logically, the the Chinese are anxious to 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 harness that that route, and you know, collaborate with the Taliban for the time being mm. uh, to, to for their own pol- political and strategic ends.
1: It sounds like the world is changing. we're, we're you know? Well, think, phenomenally. Things, things are
0: definitely shifting, and you you see in the last week um, the controversy over this new uh, British. United States and Australian alliance um, to kind of mm, monitor China's aspirations in 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 Asia uh, and in the Indo the the Asia Pacific Indo Pacific region and you know some some wit observed last week oh, well the Americans uh, and the Brits did a great job in the Taliban so China must be shivering in its boots you know at the pro-. so you know we are we are entering. What's called the the Asia pivot, where the United States looks looks more towards uh, that Asia Pacific region and the the, the absolute growth of uh, global influence now being exerted by by China. And I think in all of that, my personal view would be that uh, you know Ireland, one of its key strengths in in terms of its foreign policy is its neutrality and our perceived perceived objectivity because we have a huge diaspora all around the world uh, that's, you know, equally one of our great, um, if you like, assets. But our neutrality is, I think it's even more important now because with Britain gone from the, U- the European Union, you're going to see an EU dominated by France and Germany. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen in the last week has stated that she'd like to see a stronger, more coherent European army. Uh, this is something that the French and the Germans have always been very keen on. And, and the biggest break on that over the decades has been Britain, but they're gone now. So that, if you like, common sense influence on, on yeah. the Europeans is gone. And Britain was also the, the key link in the chain, the, the transatlantic relationship between the United States and Europe. So if you wanted to design a weapon that would destabilize NATO, the European Union, uh, it would look like Brexit. And, you know, if you want to design a weapon that would look like, you know, that would diminish the United States' desire to, uh, you know, operate not only in its own interest, but in, in, in concert with the transatlantic alliance, you, you would have designed the, the Trump administration on what may come next, you know. So in, in, that, in this period of instability that's coming, I think it's really important that Ireland uh, not join any military alliances, uh, especially one dominated by France and Germany. Uh, and and should you know remain neutral and as we are at the moment with our membership of the the UN Security Council try to talk about values of common sense of decency of collaboration and you know just talk, talk let's let's talk instead of as we have seen in the first two decades of the 21st century The preemptive use of force, power projection in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, that clearly doesn't work. It brings about antithetical outcomes and leads us to situations where, you know, after 20 years, the Taliban are back in power, back in town.
1: We have great knowledge of that here in this country, of course, you know, from Mm. our our past. Mm -hmm. Finally, just to ask you one thing, because I was talking to um, a journalist in New Zealand recently, Jared Savage, about an incident that happened there. And um, it was a lone wolf attacker, a guy who had tried to go out to Syria, had been stopped and was being followed. They knew he was really dangerous. They were following him 24-7, the police. And he got into a supermarket and within 60 seconds had stabbed six, eight people. Mm. He'd had his moment to go for it. Like, we can't really police people like that. And the likelihood is there could be some here within our communities here in Ireland. And I suppose the only thing we can do is urge and reach out to communities to come forward with information. If they feel somebody is acting radicalized, I always think when you, when you're reporting on these incidents, they're very clear that they are radicalized. They're not trying mm. to hide that, you mm. know, because they don't see there's anything wrong with it. So, I mean, Barring that, there's nothing we can do, and and no. and obviously hope think, I, there I, won't I, I, be an attack like that here. But
0: I think on the on the positive side, I mean, the during the troubles, I remember at one point, um, sometimes particularly in U.S. media, they characterised the the political violence here as being a, a religious struggle between Catholics and Protestants, and and it really wasn't. I mean, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness didn't become involved in in their in the struggle because of, you know, the, the, the virgin birth or, mm. you know, whether or not transubstantiation happened, you know, it wasn't a, really a Catholic Protestant conflict. It was about resource mobilization, access to housing, to employment, to, to justice, to equality and those things. Uh, and the vast majority of the Catholic and Protestant community, you know, were not interested in uh, turning to violence. And it's the same for the Muslim community. The vast majority of Muslims are absolutely horrified by the actions of these Islamist groups. And in fact, in France and in Belgium, where there was a particular problem, uh, you know, around the time of the Bataclan attacks and the other, other attacks, the vast majority of the intelligence that the, the French and uh, authorities were, were actually coming from those communities... Um, because I I remember speaking to a very senior French counter-terrorist chief and I said, you know, do you have many Arabic speakers? And he said, we don't need them. He said, our information is coming from those communities in French. They're telling us because they want. So you're never going to stop these attacks. They'll always be like the the Pulse nightclub attack in Orlando. And essentially these are just hate, hate crimes. You know, they might mobilize, you know, Islamist rhetoric or, you know, far-right rhetoric. The principal challenge for Ireland is not Islamist extremism um, or Ireland being used as a platform to to launch attacks on, on Britain or other European member states. The, the principal challenge for us now in 2021 is what's going to happen next on this island because we are, whether we like it or not, ready or not, we are looking down the twin barrels of some sort of an all-island entity. And I don't think that the Irish defence forces Heron, or An Garda Síochána I don't think either of those organisations will even exist in 10 or 15 years time they're going to be replaced by something else you know whether it be the police service of all, of all Ireland or mm. the defence forces of Ireland and we need to start thinking about designing the security defence policing and just, justice infrastructure for what this island is going to look like. So in a, in, in thinking about terrorism and, and threats, that's the principal threat on this island. A lot of the commentary out here seem to think that an all-island prospect is something like East and West Germany reuniting or, you know, an extension of the 26th Republic, 26th County Republic to include all 32. And that's not analogous. We're, we're like the Balkans. We're like Bosnia. I was there at the end of that conflict and saw how ugly that was. And if we don't prepare properly, we're looking at, you know, a very serious threat, which we're already beginning to see in terms of uh, civil disorder, uh, a frightened community of nationalists, uh, sorry, uh, of loyalists and unionists who who feel threatened, who feel frightened, who feel unsure of what's going to happen next. So that's where we need to start looking and, uh, we need to
1: fix our, ourselves at home here yeah, before we start Yeah, we have some serious challenges
0: mm. within policing, within the administration of justice, and unfortunately within our armed forces. So we, we've a lot to think about in the next uh, 10 to 20 years.
1: And the thread, I think, that goes through all of this is dialogue and, and trying to, to keep up mm-hmm. and, an and understanding, isn't it, of other communities yeah, and, and re- thought re- reaching processes. out to them.
0: Like, I- I- If we plan for this, it, it could be a huge success. But if we don't plan for it, then it's absolutely a certainty that we're going to have a big problem on our hands and it's going to make the Troubles look like, you know, an episode of Sesame Street. And there are, unfortunately, voices, very loud voices in our society who say, this is not the time to talk about this. We shouldn't go, we shouldn't be thinking about this, we shouldn't be talking about it. This is absolutely the time to start talking about it. Uh, we need to plan, we need to reach out to everybody on the island And, you know, because otherwise we leave the narrative in the hands of extremist groups like the, you know, dissident Republicans, dissident loyalists. Uh, And, you know, when you do that, you lose control of the narrative. And, you know, conflict can take place very, very quickly. Things can become very destabilized very, very quickly. So we just need to talk, plan. And that infrastructure for security, defense, policing, we have to look at the same thing for health, for education, Uh, so that all of the communities in this island can live together and be uh, self-actualized and fulfilled and happy in the the same way that you would hope in Afghanistan that eventually Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazara, Pashtun could all live together. But, But not talking about it is not the answer.
1: Tom Clonan, thank you very much.